sing with us as you know it. Though the tears may fall, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. Though my heart may fail, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. While there's breath in my lungs, I will praise you, Lord. Sing with us. In the dead of night, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. When the waters rise, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. While there's hope in this heart, I will praise you, Lord. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. In the darkness I'll dance, in the shadows I'll sing. The joy of the Lord is my strength. When I cannot see you with my eyes, let faith arise to you. When I cannot feel your hand in mine, let faith arise to you. God of mercy and love, I will praise you, Lord. How you shine with glory, Lord of light, I feel alive with you. It's in your presence now, I come alive, I am alive with you. There is strength when I say that I will praise you, Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. In the darkness I'll dance, in the shadows I'll sing. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Think of something wonderful he's done for you this week and then sing to him. When sorrow comes my way, you are the shield around me. Always you remain my courage in the fight. Jesus, I am coming, walking on the waves. I'm reaching for your life. When sorrow comes my way, you are the shield around me. Always you remain my courage in the fight. I hear you call my name. Jesus, I am coming, walking on the waves. I'm reaching for your The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's in the darkness I'll dance, in the shadows I'll sing. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. In the darkness I'll dance, in the shadows. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing they call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mountain fixed upon the mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hold by thy good pleasure safely to Jesus sought 
Psalms 118, we read these words. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy is everlasting. Let Israel say, his mercy is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his mercy is everlasting. Let those who fear the Lord say, his mercy is everlasting. And I know I would never, ever try to rewrite scripture, but don't you think we could say, let the people in this room say, his mercy is everlasting. Do you agree with that this morning? He has done so much for us. He continues to do so much for us. Simply being here this morning and raising our voices to him isn't enough, but it's what we offer this morning as worship to him this morning. Let's continue to sing and praise him for all that he does for us.
Father, that truly is why we are here this morning, to sing praise to the King of Kings. Lord, you are the King of our world. You're the King of our nation. You're the King of this place, Lord. God, we come together as a community of people, as a family of believers today, acknowledging that you are the King of us. But God, we come to you as individuals as well. Father, be the King of who we are today. Lord, we want your rule and your reign over every single part of who we are. Father, we thank you for the blessings you've poured out on us. We thank you, Lord, for the good things we could look back on this week and praise you for and thank you for. Father, we also know that there are some who come in this morning with heavy hearts. God, you want to be the king of all, Lord, our good and our bad. So this morning, Lord, may we hear you in all aspects of how you want us to hear and to listen. May we see you in all the ways you want us to see you, Lord. May we spend time this morning together with each other, but also together with you, knowing that you are here, that your truth is here, Lord, your love is here for us, so that we may partake of what it is, Lord. Fill us with you today, so that we may walk out of this place this morning, know that we've met with you, knowing, Lord, that you go with us. Thank you for the word that you've placed on Pastor Brian's heart this morning. Thank you for what he's about to say to us through you. May we hear your words through his today. In your name we thank you and praise you. I attended Eastdale Elementary School when I was a kid, building with four clusters where they'd have different grades meet, and in the middle of the clusters was what we call the library, and many schools or libraries either getting smaller or they're more digital, the things have certainly changed uh, in our day and age today, but I'm thankful for that my time in, in the library as a kid and there was one particular section of the library that I frequented. It was the books that, that housed all of the, the literature from the, the stories of the American frontier. It was always just very inviting to me and interesting to me and one I enjoy reading about. I had uh, characters such as Kit Carson and, and Daniel Boone. And my favorite, though, was, was Davy Crockett. I just remember enjoying all of the stories that they would tell of, of their adventures and uh, helping kind of pave the way through uh, kind of the, this uh, great frontier that America was becoming in a couple hundred years ago. Um, but if you remember library books back in my day, you may remember this, in the back of them was a card in a little envelope, a pocket, and you'd take out that card and you would sign your name on there, and then you'd take it to the librarian. They would stamp the card and put it in their file, and then in the book, they would stamp on the back, so they'd give you a date, so you know when you have to return the book, when the book had to be brought back. And in the books that I would often read, there would be very few other names. Seemed to not many others had the same interest that I did during this particular season of my life. And I remember a couple of books. My, my school had two Davy Crockett books. That was all they had. I asked them to get more, but they only ever had two. And my name would just practically fill up the card. I'd finish reading it, take it home. And we're not so different today. We still binge watch our TV shows. We rewatch reruns just because we, we find something that we like, that we resonate with, and we keep going back to it. So, but this particular uh, season of my life was something I enjoyed. At social studies, we would have assignments where we'd have to study a certain character. I happened to have an Uncle Fred who was into uh, reenactments, historical reenactments. So when it came time to dress up for social studies class, I had it made. I had the buckskin pants. I had the moccasins. I, I, had, I had the traps. I looked like the real deal. I always got good grades during those types of presentations. So uh, I, as I got a little bit older, I would come to enjoy watching Fess Parker and the adventures of Davy Crockett. Uh, that included, of course, the Battle of the Alamo. Uh, later, I would uh, watch and, and kind of enjoy the John Wayne version, not quite the same, but, you know, we all have our kind of our childhood affinities that we get drawn to. So Davy Crockett is one of my childhood heroes. A few months, or sorry, a few years ago, I got a text from my mom. And we, she had a cousin that was doing some genealogy research and was talking to me about her mother, my grandma Marjorie. And my grandma Marjorie, her maiden name was Hawkins. So she was of this Hawkins family tree. And she has a, my mom had a cousin who was tracing back uh, the Hawkins family tree and found a branch in the tree where there was one named Rebecca Hawkins. Rebecca Hawkins was Davy Crockett's mother. So all those things that I knew as a kid, and as you have figured out by now, I'm sure, I am six times removed, the cousin <laughs> of Davy Crockett. 
Davy, yes. Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. That's right, the king of the wild frontier, the, the ballad of Davy Crockett. I was really tempted to play that whole song for you today, but I don't think you'd want to listen to seven minutes of Fess Parker singing about Davy's exploits. But as a kid, I just knew it. I'm reading those books, watching those movies, I could just feel the connection. I was related to the king of the wild frontier, which means Eli is too, and he's so embarrassed right now, his dad's wearing a coonskin hat up on the platform. But don't you love genealogies? Kind of the study of our stories, where we've come from, people that have helped mold and shape us, ones whose uh, experiences have fit into our own, ones who in many ways have helped define who we are. Genealogy has led to even the giving of our names, especially our surnames. See, we're known by our names. Now, my mom, uh, my grandmother got married to a Rogers. So uh, while she was still a Hawkins, her name became Rogers. My mom was a Rogers, married to Richardson's. Now, we, we kind of take different turns in our family tree, but those branches are all connected. They tell a story. Our names tell stories. Now, names have meaning, as you can get on baby mean, name meaning books, and you can kind of study the meaning of your actual name. But over time, our lives have a way of providing definitions to our names in and amongst themselves. You become known by your name. You're identified by your name. The descriptor of your life, of your personality, the things that are important to you, the things that matter. Who's important to you? Who you belong to? Whose family you're a part of? Our names over time tell much about us to others. As you get to know someone, you identify them by their name. Very soon, that name simply becomes a placeholder for the more important aspects of their lives. And we've been spending the last six weeks together talking about a man whose name, when taken literally, uh, was not very complimentary. It was not a name that invoked hope or would indicate any type of future. But today, thankfully, the conversation begins to change for Jacob. Jacob, as we shared, his name literally means heel grabber. That the definition given, because when he was born, he was, he was a twin. As he was, uh, he was born, his brother Esau was born first. Jacob literally was grabbing hold of the heel of his brother. It's how creative they were back in biblical times. Well, we can't think of a better name. Let's just call him heel grabber, grabbing his brother's heel. He became known as a deceiver, one who uh, would, would do anything to accomplish his own goals and uh, reach his own desires to, to find the way to fulfill what was important to him. So the name Jacob over history has come to kind of mirror, if you will, to mimic, to represent the type of person that Jacob was. Jacob's been on a journey. He's picked up a lot of baggage along the way. God's helped him deal with some of it, but Jacob is still carrying a heavy load. Still on his own, through his own actions, adding to all that he's carrying. He was a young man who was desperate for position. Position at the birthright that he conned Esau out of supposedly provided. He was desperate for acceptance. Acceptance that came when he deceived his own father into receiving the blessing of the firstborn. Desperate for approval. Desperate to save his own neck when he found out that Esau was out to kill him. Desperate for a woman that he'd fallen head over heels in love with. So much so that he worked 14 years in order to have the privilege of marrying her. His whole broken life Jacob has spent trying to fill this void in his heart with different things, different people, different stuff, with money, with power, with position, with, with earthly approval, with marriage relationships. Yet something still not quite adding up for Jacob. He finally meets this, this God of Abraham and Isaac that he's heard so much about in a dream. As he's running away from Esau, he's all alone. Uh, with literally nothing but the staff that he's holding. And God, uh, in, in a dream, descends the stairway from heaven and comes to Jacob in Jacob's moment of desperation. But Jacob still doesn't know God. Still lacking something essential. Despite two wives and 11 sons and more spotted and striped livestock that you can read about in Genesis chapter 30 than one could count, Jacob was still searching. He is still what his reputation and his name said he was. 
But all of that is about to change. See, Jacob works for his uncle Laban for 20 years. Seven years for, for, for Leah, even though he didn't really want to work for Leah, and seven years for Rachel. And then he continues to work for his uncle for another six years. Uh, but in his uncle, Jacob has met his match. Someone else who knows how to deceive and how to uh, take advantage of others. And God uses this time to toughen Jacob up, to kind of mold and to shape Jacob into who God needs him to be. And after 20 years, God finally speaks to Jacob and tells him it's time to go home. See, things are starting to turn on Jacob. Jacob, still, even though he doesn't know God, is experiencing God's favor. And his flocks are growing. And so much so that Laban's other children begin to pay attention. And they start to get angry. And they go to Laban and says, look what Jacob is doing. He's taking all of the wealth that you have helped raise up. So things are starting to turn on Jacob yet again. And every time things get tough for Jacob, Jacob runs. That's what he does. So in this moment, I find it very curious. I'm, uh, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis chapter 32 today. But in Genesis 31, there's one verse I want to share. In verse 3, it says, The Lord then said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. It's curious that Jacob, up at this point in his life, we see no indication that he's listened to God, that he's even really even heard the voice of God, short of the dream that he's had. But in this moment, when things get tough, when, when the tide begins to turn on Jacob yet again, he hears the Lord say to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And what I find equally curious is that Jacob actually obeys. He listens. He packs up the U-Haul, he loads the kids into the minivan, and he heads home. There's just one problem. Home is where Esau is. The last Jacob had heard, Esau still wanted to kill him. Now, there was no Facebook back then, no status updates. If there were, I'm sure there would have been an angry emoji next to Esau's profile, as one would expect. But Jacob has a plan. He loads up the truck and he begins, as you know, the journey from, from, from Padam Haram back to Beersheba is 500 miles. There, we'll cut that off there. Have a lot of fun with that. It's a long way home. He lived at this time about three days' journey away from Laban and his family. He packs everybody up, does not send a, a card home, let them know what's going on. He just leaves. Uh, Laban and his family find out what's happened. They begin to give pursuit. They chase Jacob uh, on the way back to Beersheba. And they catch up to Jacob around the Jordan River near the place where God, Jacob had first met God and Saul had the dream of the, of the ladder sitting from heaven. Not quite the same place, but close by. Laban's like, what are you doing? Taking my daughters and taking my grandkids and after all that we've shared in together and there's this interaction and they end up having kind of an argument and they come to this agreement and Laban does end up um, having a chance to say goodbye and he goes back home. It brings us to where we're at in Genesis chapter 32. We're now that Laban's been taken care of and now that Jacob is close to home, uh, we, we find that as he gets closer, things begin to become more real. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 32, we read that Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. This is curious. That Jacob has been running, has been denying, has been deceiving, and yet God keeps showing up in Jacob's life. Aren't you glad for that? I am. I'm glad for that. But the angels of God met with him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. And Mahanaim literally does mean two camps. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and he instructed them, this is what you're to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats and men servants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. It's Jacob's beginning, if you will, of trying to find not forgiveness, but mercy. He knows what he's done. He knows what he deserves. So he's trying to kind of plant the seeds, if you will, to see if Esau would just hopefully provide a little bit of mercy. He's going to woo his brother, first with compliments. He calls him master and lord. First himself as servant, asks for favor. 
he kind of tells Esau all the stuff that he has, as if, hey, if you want it, come and get it. He knows that he can't win fight. He knows that. Kind of like, even though I'm of the family tree of Davy Crockett, no one would confuse me as being a king of the wild frontier. Right? And no one confuses Jacob as someone who can win a fight. Jacob knows that. And the messengers return with some bad news. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 32, we read that when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Well, that's great, right? Until you keep reading. And 400 men are with him. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. Good news, Esau's coming. Bad news, he's bringing the standard size of a military regiment with him. 400 men. Esau's closest friends, who I'm sure have heard the story of the younger twin brother who has deceived and connived and tricked Esau out of what was rightfully his. Jacob knows that trouble is coming. And in fear, as Scripture tells us, divides his family into two groups. Perhaps one group can escape, and maybe he's thinking. Yeah, and you begin to see this transformation uh, in Jacob's life take shape, this realization that his actions have consequences for others. That is how sin works. We understand that, right? Our sin often has consequences for others. The others in Jacob's camp now bear the brunt of his actions, of his choices, the things that he has done. So he divides them up, trying to save some. We see him start to care for others in a different way that we haven't seen before. And then he does something out of character. Something we haven't seen yet in Scripture that Jacob do before. Verses 9 and 10, we read, Then Jacob prayed. Up to this point, he's maybe talked about God. He's interacted about the dream he's had about God. But we've not yet seen Jacob talk to God. We've seen God talk to Jacob. There hasn't been a back and forth quite yet. But here in verse 9, we see Jacob talk to God. He says, O God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown, your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two kings. Save me, I pray. Save me. You, you've brought me here. You, you instructed me to do this. You told me to come home. You have made a covenant with me. You've made promises to me. Now I ask you, God, save me. Save me from the hand of my brother. See, Jacob still views the only threat in his life as being physical, that from the hands of Esau. Jacob yet doesn't realize the real threat in Jacob's life is Jacob himself. I'm afraid he'll come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, let me remind you, God, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He's still referring to God as the God of my father, the God of my grandfather. But at least he's to the place now where he acknowledges that he's unworthy. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown me. That's a good step. He recognizes that he's now become two camps. And on one hand, this is a testimony of God's faithfulness. On the other hand, it's a statement of Jacob's real condition in this moment. Save me. You've said, God. Jacob, out of desperation, out of hopelessness, is trying to remind God the promises that he has made. This current situation drives Jacob to pray. We're not so different, are we? There's times in our lives where the situations we find ourselves in drive us to pray. It's in desperation that God steps into our camp. We'll get to that part in just a moment. Comes to us that, so that we will have a conversation with him. That's a part of grace that I'm not sure I'll ever really be able to wrap my mind around. Even in the seasons of life when I'm not seeking God, God's still seeking me. I'm thankful for that. I don't deserve that. I am unworthy of that. But God still does it. Jacob then sends what amounts to a bribe to Esau. He sends 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewe lambs and 20 rams, 30 camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 
20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. If you're not following along, Jacob is sending breeding sets to his brother. And what we recognize, this is more than just a peace offering. This is Jacob's first attempt at replacing the birthright that he had deceived his brother out of. Not only am I going to give you these animals, I'm going to give you these animals so they can keep multiplying, so they can keep growing, so that I can replace what it is I've taken from you. Then he does something kind of smart. He spaces out the herds. He sends the goats first, and there's a little bit of a gap. Then he sends the sheep, and there's a little bit of a gap. Then he sends the camels and the cows and the donkeys all spaced out, creating, if you will, a buffer. And what he's doing is he's creating space. So if they're going to come and attack me, I need as much time as I can to get out of here, to, to make my escape, to, to help my two camps kind of run away. And then we see Jacob send the gift to Esau, sends his family across the river in two groups, and Jacob stays behind. And we find him now again, just like he was 20 years before, in almost the same place, not quite, but close by. We find Jacob alone. Alone in what he called as the camp of God. So it's not Jacob's camp. This is God's camp by Jacob's own admission. He's all alone and he's hopeless. He's scared. He is filled with fear. He's desperate. He was alone, desperate, filled with fear then. Two decades have passed, and he's desperate, afraid, and alone now. That's what life does. It brings us full circle. When we try to fill the gaps in our lives with, with anything other than God, God always brings us back to his camp so we can have an interaction with him. Verse 24 of chapter 32, so Jacob was left alone. And we read this incredible verse where a man walks into his camp, and wrestles with him till daybreak. So Jacob is in this camp, this place he's called the camp of God. He's all alone, and all of a sudden, someone engages in this fight with him. They begin to grapple and wrestle and toss and spin around. You can just kind of envision what's happening. This is a battle. This is a fight. And what we see Jacob now in his desperation, knowing that he's facing death, is filled with these questions. Imagine his fear. Is this my brother? Did he sneak up on me? Is this someone that he has sent? What's happening? Jacob, strictly because of fear for his life, begins to wrestle back. And in his mind, literally fighting for more ways than one for his sheer survival. In verse 25, we read, When the man who was wrestling with Jacob saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. He nagah, the word touch, the Hebrew word nagah, he just touched Jacob's hip. And here we get an idea of what's really happening. God kind of marched into this camp to have a fight with Jacob. And he's kind of, kind of sandbagging it, if you will. Letting kind of Jacob kind of hang into the fight. Knowing at any time he could have ended it. But he doesn't. He let's Jacob cling. Let's Jacob hold on. Let's Jacob kind of go through the struggle that he needs to go through. But when he gets to the point where it's about daybreak, he knows that if Jacob were to see him in the rising sun, that that alone would cause him to die. He wants to bring an end to the battle. So he touches Jacob in the hip. Nagah. Now that word nagah doesn't mean to grab or to twist or to pull or to poke. It just means to touch. Put a little bit of pressure on. A little bit of exertion there, but, but not this, this physical violent touch that you would expect one to have to go through in order for their hip to be wrenched. If you ever had pain in your sciatic nerve, you understand a little bit of what Jacob was experiencing this moment. Now, for us, when we face pain in those moments, our tendency is to let go. But in this moment of nagah, I believe Jacob has this incredible revelation where he realizes so many things. He's literally fighting for his life in more ways than one. Jacob feels this touch, and he understands now what's happening. Jacob realizes not just what is happening, but who is happening to him in this moment? Verse 26, the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The sun's coming up. God's calling for an end to this wrestling match. 
not to protect himself, but to protect Jacob. Jacob, knowing he may die, reacts in the midst of his desperation. He says, I may die, but if I let go of you, I'm dead anyway. You're the only hope I have in this moment. See, that touch revealed to Jacob what exactly was going on and what exactly he needed in this moment. He finally had his hands on it, and he was not going to let go. Here's what I see when I read this passage. Go back with me a few chapters, Genesis chapter 27. We see Jacob wearing his brother's clothes with fur on his neck and, and goat skin on his arms, kneeling before his father so his father Isaac could bless him, clinging to his dad, wanting nothing more to be, than to be blessed, to, to, for his dad to show approval, for him to speak value into his life. And now we find 20 years later, Jacob again on his knees, clinging to his dad, his, his heavenly father, wanting nothing more than to be blessed. All this time he thought he was searching for Isaac's blessing for the approval of man. But what he was looking for, the thing in his life that was missing, was God himself. Jacob finds himself clinging to God. Desperate to hear the words he needs to hear. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Crying out, I am hopeless without you. I am desperate. I finally figured out what for, God, I'm desperate for you. Jacob's been clinging to these bags in his life, his relationship with his dad and his mom, and a broken relationship with his brother, and relationship with his father-in-law, and his wife Leah, and his wife Rachel, and his children. He's been carrying all this baggage around. He's been clinging and holding on to this stuff. And now, in, in, in the camp of God, Jacob's wrestling with God himself. He's not letting go. And here's what we learn is really important for us in this moment. In order for Jacob to cling to God, he first had to let go of his baggage. Church, too many of us can't cling to God because we're holding on to our stuff. A couple weeks ago, we had communion together, and we talked about how you can't hold on to the bread and to the cup. You're holding on to your baggage. Last Sunday, we talked about yada and how when we praise God, we, we, we praise him with open hands. We talked about the life of Leah and how when she got finally to the point where she stopped looking for the approval and the favor of man, and she named her fourth son Judah. And Judah means to yada, to praise God. We can't praise God with the uplifting of our hands if we're holding on to our stuff. Today in Jacob's life, we see that we can't cling to God if we're clinging to the stuff in our life that's weighing us down. Baggage, we all have it, we all carry it. But we all have a God who comes to take it from us. Jacob's finally found what he's been looking for. Hope, acceptance, blessing, love, grace. And Jacob clings to the God that he once knew about, that in this moment has finally become his God. Verse 27, the man asked him, what's your name? I love this verse. This verse says so much to me. Jacob answers, Jacob. We read in Scripture one word, a one-word answer. But that one word says and acknowledges and confesses to God, I'm heel grabber. I'm a deceiver. I'm one who de deceived my dad. I took what wasn't mine. I'm one who wanted what the world offers and stuff, and I wanted the beauty that my wife offers, and I wanted the children that my family that you've given to me. My name is Jacob. And what this is, is it's a moment of confession, of acknowledgement. Clinging to God, he says, God, this is who I am. I don't like it, but it's all I've got. Look where it's gotten me. I, I'm, I'm Jacob. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. In this moment, we see a transformation occur in Jacob's life 
God steps into his life and says, you're no longer defined by the stuff you've done, but by rather by what I've done to, through, and in you. And he renames, Jacob calls him now Israel. And we see his name still living on in our culture and our world history yet today. In the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Jacob's a child of promise. His descendants would become the tribes, if you will, of Israel. His sons would grow up and his name would continue to, to be used to define what it looked like to be in a wrestling match with God. Those who struggle with God and with man and have overcome. Those who continue to overcome. Those who are transformed by clinging to God. Finally, we see Jacob become known as Israel. We see value. We see hope restored. We see promises fulfilled. We see God inter inter interact with Jacob in a way that's personal. And Jacob then has a question, a comment, if you will, a phrase. He then looks to God, says, please tell me your name. But he, God the man, replied, why do you ask me my name? You know me. You know who I am? You know what I'm about? You've known for a long time. You've just been running in the opposite direction. You've just been looking for other things. You've just been clinging to your baggage for so long that you couldn't come to the place where you recognized who I was and who I wanted to be. You know who I am. Then he blessed him there. Jacob finally receives the blessing that he's been longing for for his entire life. That, that, that thing he's been trying to find for, for 20-some years has now been given. Jacob didn't have to ask. He knew who, who God was. He knew the one he'd been searching for. And finally, Jacob stops running and starts clinging. And he has this new plan, regardless of what happens to the rising sun. Forget the fact that he's got a slighted older brother who is on his way. Jacob is going to cling to God no matter what the morning brings. I will not let you go. And God entered into Jacob's camp, or, or, or Jacob rather entered into God's camp as we read in Scripture. God walks into Jacob's life and Jacob is not letting God leave. Finally understands what it means to be a child of promise. It's not about what God does for us or through us, but rather what God, God does in us that matters. God wants to be known, wants for us to love him. And this is where true blessing is found. I, I believe, I'm not gonna, we're not going to get too deeply into it today, but in Matthew chapter 5, we see the Beatitudes, uh, you know, the, the, the blessing statements of Jesus. And after kind of, a, I'll say my lifetime up to this point of just experience and study and, and, and reading God's word and and testifying to God's faithfulness, here's what I've come to believe. And we often pray in such a way that we ask for God's blessing. I don't think I'm unique in that. I think we all do that from time to time. But here's what I now come to believe. I still ask for God's blessing and his favor. But I believe that God is a God who just inherently, naturally blesses. And when I cling to God, and when I enter into a relationship with him, when I walk with him, I think blessing is just a natural fruit that comes from belonging to the family tree of God. It's not about being connected to Davy Crockett. What's more important is I get to be a child of God. And in that relationship, I become a recipient of God's blessings, and I don't have to ask for it. It's just part of the journey. And we, we tend to ask for it when we know maybe we're not clinging to the right thing. Might our prayers change if we're holding on tightly to God? I know my God to be a God who keeps his promises. I know my God to be a God who's faithful. And if I'm walking with him, why would I feel the need to ask him continuously, Lord, I need you to bless us. Bless my children, bless my family, bless my church. If I'm walking with God and God is with me wherever I go, doesn't it make sense that blessing would just be an inherent product of that relationship? why do we ask? Because we know there's often pieces missing. As we try to walk with God, we know that as we walk with him behind us, we drag a 
bag. Hold on, God, I'm coming. And it's in the dragging and in the disconnect and the distance that that creates that we feel this need to ask God to fill in the gap for us. God says, I don't need to fill in that gap. Just hold on to me. Watch what happens. Verse 30, so Jacob called that place Peniel. He gave it a name. This is a significant place in my life. I'm going to name it. He calls it Peniel. And what Peniel literally means is it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Here Jacob found this God-shaped peace that had been missing. Israel, the one who struggled with God and with man is overcome, is no longer defined by his past, but rather is defined by this moment he has had with God. His life has changed because of this impersonal encounter with God. It took a penile moment, a face-to-face wrestling. And for our faith to become real, for us to discover God on our own, the same thing has to happen. And I think for some, for many in our church, you've been wrestling with God for a long time. Perhaps with both hands, maybe with one hand, there's been this back and forth. But you're not quite to the place yet where you're ready to cling to Him. We're still holding on to our baggage. For our young people, or maybe our not-so-young people here today, know that you're not going to have this relationship with God on your parents' coattails or, or, or through a familial connection. That's not personal. God wants to know you by name. He knows you by name. He wants you to know him by name. Jacob is a perfect example of this. For his whole life to this point, he's referred to God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. But after this moment, God now becomes known as the God of Israel. And is still known as the God of Israel. Isn't he amazing? I, I love this. This is in Genesis chapter 32. The whole rest of the book, we refer to him as the God of Israel. And Jesus comes and invites us into that personal relationship with him to cling to God in the same way that Jacob did. This has to become a personal thing. It cannot be about what others have in our lives have done. But here's what happens. We tend to get, when God wrestles with us, we get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable, we tend to move to where it's more comfortable. Maybe we go to a church where the worship is different or the preaching is different or the relationships are different or where we're not made to be uncomfortable. It's not my job to make you comfortable. If I'm making you comfortable, then I'm not doing something right because the gospel by nature is not comfortable. But it is transformative. It is hopeful. It is grace-giving. It is life-changing. That's something I want to share, but in the midst of that, it requires us to wrestle. to cling, to hold on to. How do we know our faith's become personal? How do you know you're in the midst of this wrestling match? How do you know God's trying to get your attention? Here's what I've learned. God starts to mess with us. Messes with our decisions. Messes with our entertainment. Hold on, hold on, God. Messes with our priorities, our calendars. He messes with our plans. He messes with our jobs. He might even mess with your finances. God starts to mess with us, wrestle with us. These things that he wants us to change, and we've, we've gotten really good at justifying, at rationalizing, at excusing. Can I be honest? We have, and not just outside the church. We can look at others see what they're doing it. We're really good at it inside the church as well. We wrestle. God walks into our camps and disrupts what we think we need what we think life should look like. He messes with us, and we have to come to this place where we meet with God in the midst of our weakness and pain. And a lot of us don't like to wrestle. When God starts to mess, we go somewhere where it's more comfortable. I get it. I've lived it. I've been there. I've had a few moments this week where I've experienced that. Lord, it would be a lot more comfortable if I could do this. But in order for me to do that, I have to let go of God, and I've Resolved in my life not to do that. I want to cling to him. It's in the wrestling that we realize our weakness. It's in the wrestling that we see what's missing. And for Jacob's wrestling match, he ends up in a little bit of pain. God literally nagay, nagah, his hip, touches him. So now Jacob, for the rest of his life, 
has this pain in his hip, this wrenched hip, and he limps. This constant reminder of his need to cling to God. Maybe you have a reminder in your life that God uses to get your attention. Every time that hip hurts, Jacob would know, this is God in my life. This is my penile reminder. And Jacob goes back to the place where he died, and Israel took his place. In order for Jacob to win, he first had to lose. In order for us to win, we first have to lose. Are you in a place of weakness and pain? Are you struggling, wrestling? Are you in need of a penial moment, a face-to-face encounter with God? Maybe we need to look at what it is we're searching for. Because we might think that it's found inside of a bag, but if we open up our bag, what we find is there's nothing there. It's empty. Or, or if you're like me, we might tend to drag our bags behind us and hold them so close because, well, you know, Lord, what's inside this bag? It's kind of personal, Lord. I'm not sure I can trust you with what's in here. I, I really, I don't want to give this up, God. But for me, it's my name. I don't want to be known as cousin of Davy Crockett. I want to be known as a child of God. And, and I've got to be willing to let that bag go. And we, we might have another bag in our life. Well, Lord, Lord, this one's really heavy, God. And, and this is a really tough time in my life. And, and if, I let you, if I let go of this, that means I might have to forgive someone. I might have to let go of some of the stuff that I really used to define and make who I am. And God said, let me have it. And God opens this, this bag, and what we thought was full of stuff is just empty. Oh, Lord, but you don't understand, my, my, family, my, my family stuff's in here, Lord, and, and, and this is important, and this is big, and I've got to hold on. I'm the one who holds things together. And God said, no, you're, you don't hold anything together. Who are you kidding? You're clinging to the wrong thing. Cling to me. And he says, well, Lord, I didn't. God says, let go of it. And I let go, and he opened it up, and it's empty. And I start to realize all this stuff that I thought was so heavy that I couldn't let go of that was so important just empty boxes. Old, empty boxes. All my stuff that I thought I had to hold on to, God says, just give it to me. And when I give it to him, when I cling to him, what he begins to show me is the stuff I was holding on to. Wow. Really nothing there. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your experiences and your hurts and your challenges don't matter. They do. But what I am saying is they're not too big for God. I'm saying he understands and he will handle it with sensitivity, with kindness, with gentleness. I am saying that God understands fully what's happened to you and knows completely what it is that you need. What I am saying is that your identity is not found in your stuff or your name or what you've done, whatever family tree that you've fallen from. Your identity is found in your creator, the one who walks into our camp and confronts our sin and takes away and overcomes what separates, discourages, and distracts us, the one who wrestles with us so that we could find him, the one who blesses us when we walk with him. We find God in ways that we would not otherwise if it wasn't for the moments of hurt, weakness, and pain in our life. God uses the pain, the, the desperation to step into our lives in a deeper way than he could otherwise. We're no longer hopeless. Jacob, for the first time in his life, discovers what real hope is like. He clings to it. Won't let go. He's found God. Personally, he's not letting go this time. Church, we can't cling to God as long as we're clinging to our baggage. Now the rest of the story is the sun rises and Esau comes. But not only is God doing a work in Jacob's life, God's doing a work in Esau's life as well. Esau asked Jacob after embracing his brother, what's all this stuff I passed by, all these animals? What, what was that about? 
And Esau, Jacob's like, well, that's a gift. I, I want, it's my way of saying I'm sorry. And Esau's like, I've got plenty. I don't need your stuff. Isn't it funny how God works? At the end of the day, it's never been about the stuff. It's about what we're clinging to. You could read the rest of their story, Genesis 33 and 34, 35. But for our purposes, our baggage conversation, I don't think, I don't think it's going to end today, but we're going to move in a different direction next Sunday. But I do want you to know in the coming days, weeks, months, you find yourself wrestling, struggling with what you're clinging to. You have a faith family here that understands. You have a pastor that wants to talk with you, help you through that. Who's had his own bags he's had to let go of. Been right there. But you have people in this, in, this, in this room that have been there, that have clung, who have fought, who have wrestled, and they've won. And they walk with God, not because of who they are, but because, rather because of who God is. Not in arrogance, but in humility. They've been renamed. Those who truly know God love having opportunities to speak God into their lives. C.S. Lewis, he writes, pain insists upon being attended to. <laughs> you love that? It's true, isn't it? We hurt our finger, we stub our toe, we, 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 we even do a hangnail, or we, we touch a hot stove. Whenever there's something painful in our life, we respond, don't we? Quickly. That's a gift from God respond to their pain. When pain requires us, insists upon being attended to. Then he writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses pain to get our attention so we would recognize that he's there wanting to attend to us, to love us, to hold on to us. Don't run away when the wrestling gets tough. Do what Jacob did. Cling a little bit tighter. Don't let go. I invite you to stand with me. And as I pray for you, I know that I recognize this isn't always easy to do. Letting go is hard. We're just so used to it. But we have a God who's waiting for us to quit holding on to this stuff and to cling to him instead. Perhaps you have a name change waiting for you. A new beginning God has for you. Wherever you find yourself in your journey, maybe this is all new to you and I've just confused you and you've got questions coming out your ears. Well, praise the Lord, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that. I am who I am because of who God is in my life. only because of who God is in my life. Whatever man might do, whatever discouragement might come, my God is still in control. And I'm going to cling to him. Jacob asked the man, what is your name? The man replied, you don't have to ask my name. You know who I am. You know who he is today. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you still walk into our camps and wrestle with us. Thank you, God, that you are still willing to take our stuff. We would just let go of it. It's not too big. It's not too sensitive. It, it, it's, not, it's not something you don't understand. Lord, you're aware of it, and you want it anyway. You want to take whatever it is that separates us from you. Lord, I pray for those right now that are struggling, that are wrestling. I praise you, God, that they are. That's the first step. But now, Lord, I pray you would just break through. And God, we would choose to cling to you. We recognize, Lord, you've done what you need to do. The next steps are up to us. What are we going to hold on to? Are we too uncomfortable that we want to run away? Are we willing to hold tight? Lord, you changed Jacob from the inside out. You cemented that with a change in his name. In that moment, you became his God. 
And I pray, Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ that we would seek forgiveness. As Jacob had to confess who he was, Lord, we confess who we are. Who we're not. God, I pray that you would just, as we cling to you, you would hold on tight. Take our baggage. All that stuff that separates us from you. Continue to change us, Lord. Redefine who we are in a way that only you can. Lord, be glorified, I pray, in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name, God, I ask these things. Amen. As you go today, you're going to encounter people that are going through some pain. Pain needs to be attended to. Children of God, those who cling to God, step into the pain of others. Share with them the hope you've found. Let them know about the good news you've discovered in Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great day. Remember whose family you're really a part of.